Welcome to the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. This is a podcast about our relationship with food and eating, body image, eating disorder recovery, mental health, and more. I am your host, Lynn Thorstensen, a registered nutrition therapist and body image coach based in the West of Ireland. And I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to season two of the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. Can you believe that we've done one season already and that 10, more than 10 weeks have passed since I launched the first quote-unquote proper episode because as you might know, I did a few kind of soft starter ones that were made specifically for my Substack newsletter. But here we are anyway and we're kicking off with one of my first interviews with my Substack friend Christy Coder and I'm very excited for for you to hear this episode and I suppose what else is coming up in season two there is um well the pace is going to be a bit slower from now on and you can expect about two episodes per month I have a a handful of very exciting guest interviews that I have done uh, that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you over the coming weeks and months And there's also going to be some more solo episodes with me where we'll be focusing on looking at different ways we can support our relationship with food, eating, and we might also circle back to body image. What I'm also planning and hoping to do is to put out some more calls for questions for from you listeners to um, have your question answered. And the other thing that isn't really entirely clear yet, but if you are on my newsletter list as a subscriber, you might have seen that I I am pondering what my paid community membership offering might look like. And I'm still thinking about it and we are now in the middle of November and I think it's most likely won't be launching until the new year. So I'm just kind of putting my my feelers out there. What are you looking for? What kind of support in this way would feel manageable? Because I'm also so aware that we get so much informo- information left, right and center. And I just don't feel like I want to add to it. But what I really would love for us to do is to, to come together and creating a space where we can have these conversations in a way that feels supportive, nourishing, and that can destigmatize the shame um, that is often accompanying our struggles with food, eating, and our bodies. So exactly what that's going to look like, I'm not sure. I'm all ears if you have some suggestions, and you can email me in at... um, Lynn at straightforwardnutrition.com if you have any suggestions what you think this could look like. But let's get started with season two, episode one. So today I'm here with Christy Coder, is a marketing and communications leader with 20 years of experience as a journalist, writer, and editor. She is the mother of two children who has been diagnosed and treated for eating disorders. She's a co-author of the book, Show Your Work, and writes the newsletter Almost Sated on Substack, which is where we connected. 
And her newsletter, Almost Sated, is about detoxing from diet culture. And when she isn't writing, you'll find her mountain biking, hiking, or spending time with her family in Austin, Texas. So thank you for being here, Kirsty. And I am really excited to have a conversation with you. Um, and I'm so happy as well that we've connected on Substack to our newsletter. So welcome. Thank you. Me too. I'm super excited to chat about this. I know we've had a couple of conversations already. And so it's nice for us to be able to come together and um, actually have a conversation that we can hopefully share with others. Yeah, absolutely. So where I really want to take this conversation, Krista, is your experience as a parent of taking care of your daughters struggling with eating disorders and what that kind of journey has looked like. Because I think that would be really helpful for people who find themselves in similar situations. Like I work with a few teens. It's not the primary work I do in my practice, but I definitely work with some teens. And obviously the teens have parents. And I think this it feels like, at least here in Ireland, that sometimes the support for parents is really lacking as well. And people are left out kind of in the wilderness of, you know, what are they supposed to do? What's happening? How to navigate the situation? So I would love for us to talk about that. And then, as you, as I know, you write in your newsletter, Almost Sated, about your own experience of moving away from diet culture and your own relationship with food. So I, I would love if we could talk a little bit about that too. So yeah, where would you like to start? <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll just give you a little bit of background. So I have three children um, and two are uh, daughters and um, both of them have been diagnosed with and treated for anorexia. Um, they both were diagnosed when they were 12. So, um, and both of them spent roughly four months in um, a treatment center here in Austin um, in what we call a partial hospitalization program, which I'm not sure if there's, I'm sure there's an equivalent in Ireland, but um, basically it's an intensive um, program, you know, where they arrive in the morning and they stay till like eight o'clock at night every day. Um, okay. so they both did that same program. Um, but the circumstances were very different. Um, I know you hear this all the time where it's like, you know, you've got to adapt for each kid, you know, every kid is different in treating, you know, eating disorders. And this was, definitely the case with, um, my, my kids. So, um, for example, with my oldest, um, she didn't have the same symptoms. Um, I didn't know that she was struggling with, um, anorexia. She didn't have any, you know, there wasn't significant weight loss. Okay. Um, but she was, severely depressed. And so I, um, started her in therapy and then got her a psychiatrist and, you know, thank goodness he evaluated her and suggested she might have an eating disorder. 
And then from there, um, I got her evaluated by a treatment center and then she was admitted. Um, and so, and this was long before COVID. So there was, <laughs> so it was very different back then. I had a totally different experience with my other child, but um, there wasn't a wait to get into treatment. And so um, it was just a very different experience. Like, you know, everything was in person, um, you know, family education was part of the program and that was all in person. So um, it was a, a, just a different, a different time. And I'm sure it's still very different now, but with my youngest daughter, um, I, well, starting with symptoms, it was, you know, she was, um, she was, she rapidly started dropping weight. And since I had already had that experience with my other child, I pretty much knew from the beginning, like, okay, here we go again. Mm -hmm. um, basically, you know, I remembered like in some of the education sessions I did, you know, I remember the director of the program explaining, like, if you have one child with an eating disorder, you, you have a much greater chance of having another child with an eating disorder. So it was always sort of like in the back of my mind that, you know, um, I needed to be watching for this. And, um, you know, when it happened, I was just very, you know, immediately thinking, okay, this is a problem and we've got to do something about it. But we were in the middle of COVID. Um, oh. And because of, you know, during COVID, as you know, there's been this massive increase in mental health issues yeah. and eating disorders in particular. So it took me six months to get her in with an eating disorder specialist from the point where I started realizing, okay, there's a, a big problem here. Um, and I really didn't feel like I could do anything until I had that full diagnosis. So I was kind of just watching that situation. Um, I did get her in with her primary care, her pediatrician, and he evaluated her, but, and his take was, I don't think she has an eating disorder. She's saying all the right things, but I think she's severely depressed. And luckily, because I have already gone through this experience, I just was thinking, nope, that's not what this is. Um, and so, you know, I was pretty prepared once we got her in and evaluated, um, the recommendation was, you know, let's put her into treatment. Right. And so, um, and again, there was a wait for that. And some of the facilities were just doing virtual, um, which, you know, I just, it's really hard to do treat children for eating disorders in a virtual setting. Um, so luckily we didn't, we didn't have to do that. She ended up going in person in PHP. Um, so just kind of two different experiences there. And then, um, you know, once my oldest child came out of treatment, she was basically weight restored and there wasn't this huge struggle. I was just basically following the the program in terms of nutrition with her and um which is very rare you know mm -hmm. and 
from what I understand and what I, the knowledge I have now, um, that is a very rare scenario. And, um, and my other child's experience was much more typical where, um, well, first of all, she left the program not weight restored. And so a lot of that was going to fall on us at home and it did not work out well for us initially. So, I mean, initially she was fine. She came out, she was happy to be out of program. And then she started sliding back into old, you know, habits of restriction and, um, and it just became very clear to us that, um, if we don't take really aggressive action with this, that we're not going to, we're not going to treat her, you know, we're not going to get her the help she needs. And I just didn't want to have her drop all the weight she had gained in program again. Right. And so I realized at that point, um, like I need to be much more proactive in this um, role that I have been and um, having to take over, you know, all aspects of meal prep and um, planning and um, watching her with every meal and um, following loosely with, um, well, not, I mean, with the, the family-based therapy recommendations. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure you've heard of Eva Muspie's book. Um, she has a book for parents that largely talks about getting your child to eat who doesn't want to eat. Yeah, I don't know if I've read that book. I've read a couple of books around uh, like the equity approach and I read um, How to Nourish Your Child When They Have an Eating Disorder, which is written by two dietitians, I think. It's uh, the plate by plate approach. I don't know if you've heard about that one. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point in time, I mean, we were back at sort of a critical, you know, it was, I, I'm, I'm minimizing here. It was, <laughs> it was a terrible, terrible time. I mean, every meal was a massive battle, you know, every meal just about ended in screaming and tears and, refusal to eat and um it was a really horrible situation um and there was a time you know we got into a fight I was trying to make her eat a snack and she took you know the bar and shoved it into my mouth and was like you eat it you know and uh, and I took a couple of bites and then, you know, and then she calmed down and she finally, we had this conversation. She was like, you know, it helps me when you eat along with me. And at that point in time, I was still restricting my own food. You know, I wasn't, I, you know, I'd been engaging in my own battles with food for, you know, my entire life. And I heard, you know, I had these internal sort of rules about what I would and wouldn't eat and what time I would eat. And, um, you know, all along with helping her, I had this little voice in the back of my head that was saying, you need to do this. 
you need to address your own issues. And I finally realized, you know, there was kind of this turning point where I realized like, if I really want to help her, I really need to help myself. And just to be clear, I don't think ever, it's not required that parents change their eating habits to help their kids recover from eating disorders, you know, and I do think parents, even with dieting backgrounds can support their kids, right? I had done that with my yeah. first child, but in this case, I really felt like I'm asking her to do things that I am also scared to do. And, um, and if, you know, if I really want her to get better, I need to be better. And so kind of parallel to refeeding her, I um, started doing research on intuitive eating. And um, because I had been something that had come up through, um, you know, through the nutritionists um, and treatment that my my other daughter had received is this idea of like, you know, learning to be in tune with your body, um, which I want to preface that, you know, a lot of people with eating disorders may not ever get to that point. So it's not a solution for, I know it's not no, a solution. Or people who have, you know, other feeding differences or, you know, neurodivergences where, more structure is necessary in order for the body to get adequately fed on a right. regular basis. Like I feel as well, like when you are talk when you're talking about intuitive eating or feeding differences, and like this is where I think personally, like moving towards somewhere like Substack, where you have more space, or towards podcasting, where you have some more space for these more nuanced conversations around really complex topics, because it gets we just grab bit bite-sized information and makes them into these black and white topics. Uh, you yeah. know, when we're picking it up from social media, I think um, that's just my own. And it goes for most topics and not just around feeding and eating, but all kinds of things um, as well, where we kind of make it into this binary, just like default. If it's not this, it's that, and there's no middle ground. And that's just how it is but I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think again in this world we live in of comparison and trying to constant self-improvement you don't want people to feel like if I can't do that perfectly I failed at this as well which is yeah there's no perfect in recovery right well this is very much the the diet mentality right you have to follow the diet to the to a T or you're a failure and if you're you know and then if you're a failure and you know that for a lot of people just sabotages them <laughs> you know it's this vicious kind of cycle so um I think there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for recovery from eating disorders and there's not a perfect way of eating you know we're all kind of just finding what works for us through this process right um but for me I knew that I needed to transition away from dieting and restriction because it was this 
vicious cycle for me. And it was a, you know, it was this constant kind of narrative running through my mind all the time, this negative, you know, um, negative self-talk, basically, you know, I could be the most accomplished person in the world, but because I didn't like my body and I didn't think it, you know, I'm, I felt like a failure, you know, um, and that was, that was ruling me for many, many years. So, um, so I kind of just, you know, raised the white flag and just said, I surrender, you know, <laughs> I surrender to myself. I can no longer do this and I'm going to address my own issues. <laughs> and so that is basically um, kind of the, what happened with um, me starting this new way of thinking. And since I tend to go all in on everything I do, I started doing the reading and the research. And, um, you know, I started with the intuitive eating book. And, you know, there was some line in there that was something like, you know, if you've had a lot of trauma in your life, you may not be able to do this without the help of a therapist, you know, or some outside help. And so I found um, an intuitive eating certified therapist to help me work, you know, through some of my issues because I'm very, you know, not, I've had a long history of ignoring my body and a long history of pushing through, you know, pain or ignoring signals and I have a hard time identifying you know what does what do I need what what do I feel right now and so um I did a lot of work on that as well to help me get through that process which I think was hugely important for um my mental growth more than you know, mental well-being more so than just um, nutrition. Yeah, I thank you for for that because I think that is the beauty of like having working with somebody else, and also like again, I think when we often don't realize maybe how much trauma or how 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 often we're not connecting to our bodies because we're not aware that that's where we are. That it also then you just pick up the book and you read it or and it's just like eat when you're hungry and stuff when you're full and it's like well how am I going to I I'm not sure I can even feel my feet on the ground you know or where my body is sitting or you know how it's moving through space because I'm so disconnected so it's just like it then and again then it feels like well obviously this isn't for me and I can't do it and I'm broken and then it just feeds into the same negative self-talk loop that we already have going on um and and then and I think it's feel as well like sometimes that's where the misunderstanding comes when people I don't know, maybe haven't read the book or any books alongside around moving away from dieting and reconnecting with your body and, and moving towards that body trust They've just seen bite-sized bits on social media and haven't actually 
if they read any of the resources or the resources or the books, worked with anybody on it, or like really understand like the deeper kind of bits of, and that this work takes time long. Yeah. It can take a lot, like a long time in how it's going to unfold. I think, like you said before, it's going to look slightly different for different people. And that's yeah. fine. Yeah. And that's actually part of why, like, I knew that it would take a long time. I knew that I was looking at years probably to get to this place because I'd had a I had had a lifetime of really messed up thinking and messed up body image and so I knew it would take a long time and that's part of why when I started I decided I'm gonna journal about this process and you know, it, because my background is in writing, I was immediately thinking, well, you know, I'd like to put out a book about this experience, you know, because there is not a, not that there's a ton there, but there are a handful of kind of books on the subject, but they're not written from the perspective of um, a person going through the experience and what mm -hmm. to expect. And yeah. so... I felt like that was a missing piece. You know, I wanted to have some examples myself of like, okay, here are 10 people and here are their experiences in the first year, right? And I know that, you know, every person, all 10 of those people would have a different experience, but probably there would be some similar themes. I would and think so. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why I initially started with journaling and then, when I told my therapist, she said, oh, you should start a Substack." And, <laughs> and she I love like, that your therapist said that. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you can just put it out there and like, kind of see, you know, what happens. And so um, that's what started me with Substack. It's sort of evolved though, because, you know, when I started this process, I thought it was a me problem you know mm -hmm. I thought I was broken I was you know I was completely messed up and this was a fault of mine that I am in the body size I'm in and I need to be fixed right and then mm -hmm. the further you go in this process the more you realize like actually no you're in the body you're supposed to be in and <laughs> You, you listening to your body is, you know, and, and you may be bigger listening to your body, but that's what your body is meant to be. And it's actually society that's broken. You know, society is sending this message that you're meant to be this certain size and society is sending this message that if you just had more willpower, you would be skinny. And yeah. so it moved beyond just talking about me because um, it's really a much larger issue than uh, an individual problem. Yeah, I think, and that was also something that I didn't understand, like initially in my own like struggles, because also, I don't know if you've had this experience, but when you're in the, when you're eating, it's like chaotic or you're dieting or, 
unless you're dieting with a friend or friends but you're in that cycle and then it feels like there's so much shame around it it's often it's really it's a really isolating experience in and of itself and then when you maybe eventually like reach out for help and stuff it's like you're working with your therapist or your nutrition professional or coach and then it's like and even in the early resources that I read when I first sort of moved this path professionally, there wasn't that many of them talking about the cultural connection and the cultural issues and like, like diet culture as a whole. And then like when you widen it out into the, the bigger systemic issues like patriarchy, colonialism, capitalism, all the isms, um, ableism, racism, you know, how they're all kind of feed into this and even when we say oh but I just want to lose weight for myself or I just want to fix my nose for myself because I want to feel better about myself it's not about what anybody else thinks but like where did we get the idea that we have to fix our bodies to look a certain way like we didn't come out thinking like that I don't yeah. think yeah I agree even when we say it's, well, it's just for me. Really? Like, if we lived somewhere where nobody, where there was no mirrors and nobody had ever heard of diet culture and, like, you know, you didn't really know what your body looked like to other people, like, like would we really care what it looked like? We might have other issues, but, like, that might be one of them. Yeah, for sure. I know. So, yeah, I think there was a study done. We heard come across this one in Hawaii or it could be in Fiji or somewhere like that where they didn't have um tv commercials um and they didn't really have they didn't have any high particular high prevalence of eating disorders or body image stuff and then when they were getting more access to that kind of tv and commercial and information it sort of all of a sudden things were increasing because it just wasn't a focus in the culture on yeah. beauty stand western beauty ideals i suppose it can and each we are more influenced than we think we are and each generation have their own source sure. of um influences and in how we think about bodies um yeah where are you now on your journey Christy and what would you from where you are now what would you like to go back and tell your younger self well that's a good question <laughs> that's a really good question um well if I could wave this magic wand and go back I would try to eliminate all of that negativity you know in terms of messaging because I remember being a kid and thinking I was fat, you know, and, um, and I look back now, my sister just shared a video of us as kids, which was very rare to have that, you know, we were in high school or whatever, but I'm like, you know what, I've always been broad and I've always been very muscular, but I was not fat. My entire life, I thought it was fat. And so um, I think that if I could go back and just eliminate those feelings, I wouldn't have, I mean, obviously I wouldn't have gone through this life, this full life of thinking I'm a 
failure, you know, and, and that just the negativity around that one aspect of your failure because of your body size has influenced all, you know, most of my life decisions, because if you're constantly in this negative self-talk, it's just like you're pulling yourself down. So that's where, you know, I wish where I could get to, you know, and I think um, one of the beautiful things about my children having gone through the experience that they have is that they're very quick to recognize diet culture. They're very quick to understand this is not okay. And this is, you know, negative self-talk or body shaming or, you know, you know, at least now they're going to, they have the education Mm -hmm. to see what's happening. And I think it will positively influence them um, for the rest of their lives. Um, But in terms of where I am with my journey right now, I'm going to be real. I'm struggling. Um, I think I've gone through a place. It's been uh, a year of transition, a year of not dieting. And I've had you know, a variety of, you know, breakthroughs, I think, in terms of, you know, understanding how detrimental diet culture is and all this, you know, the the cycle and how it, you know, makes people feel horrible about themselves. But um, where I still, I'm fully on board with this idea of listening to my body and, you know, nourishing my body and seeing food as this beautiful thing that helps me live um but because I have gained weight and I'm a very active person it's hard at times because I have physical um it you know physical restrictions that weren't there before and so that has been super challenging and I'm trying to work through you know, how do I address these issues without dieting? Mm-hmm. Um, which is really a hard thing, you know, and yeah. I'm also wrestling things with, with, with thoughts like, should I lose weight just so I can physically be able to do what I want to do with my life? Is that okay? I, you know, and, um, and I don't see any way that possible to make that work. Yeah. Because it didn't, because it doesn't work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not maintainable. It doesn't work. And it's a, it's, I don't want to go back to that feeling, you know, mm-hmm. where all of my thoughts are occupied by food and restricting food and what I should be doing I just don't want to go back to that yeah and I and and it's like that both and and where you are now and in terms of where your body changed and how those changes impact your life are also real and things that I hear people grappling with over time you know in 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 my own practice or or and it's like and how do you balance that particular when you've gotten to the place of knowing that I cannot diet anymore or 
we've been working actively on not doing that and, and, and healing that relationship with food. And then it's like, but, and here's my body now that has changed and it's not working or behaving the way it did when it was slightly smaller. And what am I going to do with all the feelings that this is, this, this is bringing up? Because it's like, it's kind of like, I was going to say you can't, can't have the cake and eat it too, but it feels like the wrong analogy in this, in this, in this example. It's, it is just really hard and difficult. And I think that it is hard. Doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong or that anybody who's experienced something similar to what you're experiencing mean that they're doing it any, any wrong. I think, I feel like, um, I don't know if you come across, um, oh God, uh, body image with Brie. She's a woman, she's a social worker on Instagram and she's in a large body. I think she had weight loss surgery when she was quite young as well. And she talks a lot about body grief and around that, like how do we move towards that space of holding ourselves and our realities with acceptance. Yeah. And within that, and I think that goes for any kind of body changes, whether they're as a result of dieting or not dieting or ability, disability changes that happen in our lives and how our bodies are functioning, that sometimes we, we might have to spend some time grieving the changes and aging being part of them too. Because I, I don't yeah. know, I'm in my early 40s. I'm just noticing that. I feel like my body is behaving a little bit different to what it has been. Yeah. Just, I don't know. It just feels like there's a different energy when you're moving into your forties. Um, then say my thirties, I don't know. This is just yeah. my personal observation. No, I mean, I think that's part of this whole thing is accepting that our bodies are meant to change is a huge, huge part of the journey and grieving the former body or the former body you were chasing you know yeah a lot of us never achieved what we wanted but we're still we need to grieve the ideal that we were chasing after um I think I've done quite a bit of that work but I also think that part of this is you know as you know that recovery is not this linear process and um And I struggle, I go through periods where I'm struggling with particular issues. And I would just give this as an example because, you know, I just returned from vacation in Hawaii. And the first part of the vacation, we were in this very um, tourist, you know, kind of probably upper middle class environment and I got into this really bad like comparison situation and felt like oh my gosh I see no one here who looks like me and I got into this really negative headspace about it and um and then we moved to a different part of the island and it was like there are real people here and real more representation of society here and I calmed down and I realized you know because I never really thought of I mean I had heard this but I didn't really realize like representation matters 
seeing all sizes, you know, is important in part of this process and just, yeah. you know, um, and then I ended up, you know, my daughter and I, my oldest daughter and I were on the beach and talking about it. And she said, yeah, I was feeling really bad about myself and I'm, uh, a very small midsize, you know, so she, you know, she was even feeling it, even though arguably it's just, it's one of those things, right? Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, for each one of us, like dismantling diet culture, like personally, internally, but also then like working collectively of undoing all of this stuff and like not doing our best not to even inadvertently uphold it serves everyone. Yeah. But of course it is, you know, it helps people in the biggest bodies the most like that's the kind of, but it, it does because even people in smaller bodies or small bodies are still feeling the same though for people on the outside it's like yeah well what's your you know what's your problem like um, yeah. and and don't face the same obviously the, not the discrimination as people in, in much bigger bodies but it's just the the narrative is still simmering in the in the air and you know it's, it does affect everyone though very differently so yeah. We, we'll all we'll all benefit, I think, from working towards that, so that the next generation of young people come along and don't have as great a risk of developing disordered eating or eating disorders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the more we can destigmatize, you know, weight and larger bodies, I think the um the better for society as a whole like you just said um I mean it's very it seems like it's so simple this idea of just stop stigmatizing you know people in larger bodies that would end so much of the issue right yeah. um but you know how do you stop I just it's yeah, it seems so incredibly simple. It's like just treat everybody as decent human beings, you know, yeah. respect and care and access and accommodations. And how difficult can it be? But because there's so much of that stereotyping and biases woven into like everything all the time, everywhere, whether we've yeah. internalized it or not. And even if we haven't internalized it, we probably internalize the messages about what we should think about people in larger bodies. And yeah. so either we make that about ourselves or we're scared, we're afraid that, you know, if our bodies are changing, then that means that you like all of the stuff that just fits into that. So, but yeah, I, I mean, for me personally, the solution, yeah, you know, just treat people with respect and care and as human beings like how difficult can it be but I think there's the there's a help narrative then that kind of fits into that makes this a little bit more complex than maybe it has to be but it does make make it a bit more and the and the idea as well I think around weight the fact that 
the message that is being portrayed and sold um, because, you know, as you know, this is a huge multi-billion dollar industry and there's a lot of people in different areas making a lot of money of trying to change bodies. Yeah. Regardless whether it's work or it doesn't work. But the fact that we're led to believe that we have control over um, how they how they yeah. behave or what they're fat or small or tall or short or whatever that it's like if we just yeah if we could eventually arrive at a place where natural body diversity is a thing and let's help people take care of the bodies they have maybe there would be a lot of people out of business if we if we, if we arrived there <laughs> you yeah, know for sure I mean I think the danger we've got right now is you know one of the biggest problems is the weight bias in the medical community and you know we've gotten to this point where people think obesity is a disease in and of itself you know and it's so hard to argue with people on that point right and then you have this you know, billion dollar diet industry that's pushing that narrative, you know, and yeah. um, especially, you know, the drug makers yeah. influencing the medical community through, yeah. it is systemic and it gets down to, you know, it makes it much more complicated because you've got all these parents who um, they just want to do the right thing, right? They just want their kids to be healthy and they're looking to the medical community to tell them what's healthy. And the medical community has this, you know, baked in set of biases that, um, you know, it's just extraordinarily hard to fight against that. Yeah, I don't have kids myself, so I can only imagine and I can, I can't even imagine what it would be like as a parent of a child in a bigger body having an eating disorder it's almost like for a lot of medical people in the medical professional world um right across the spectrum it's like unless you know or understand that people in bigger bodies can have restrictive eating disorders and not everybody with a restrictive order eating disorder will lose a significant amount of weight or there could be a significant amount of weight lost, but that might still keep the person, depending on the starting point, within a quote-unquote healthy, and I say inverted commas because of BMI's bullshit anyway, but that's kind of, so then you're in this, oh, that's great. Even if the per, even though the person might be displaying all the symptoms of a restrictive eating disorder behaviors yeah. and mental and physical as well. So it's like, oh, yeah. I feel so, you know, I just, I feel so lucky because I, I just happened to get the right treatment for the right facility for my children, because I know there are a lot of facilities out there that are still inadvertently keeping children, especially trapped in eating disorder in eating disorders because of their own, you know, there's bias there as well. And depending on, you know, if you're 
try to keep a child in a normal BMI range and, and setting a target weight range that doesn't fit for that child, you're effectively keeping them in a restrictive state, right? And they, you know, a starved brain is not going to recover. Yeah, yeah. And that's where that's the, the physiological, physiology meets the psychology in that brain space of, of and prolonged starvation. And then in Ireland, like there, there's quite, there isn't an awful lot of access for help and people are often have to get quite sick before they get help. And as you know, as well as like the longer you wait, the harder it gets and the recovery, um, the chances of full recovery are much higher the earlier you can put in the interventions. So that's just, and then when people are older, once you kind of moved out of the camps, it's much harder again, unless you have access to private care, because you'd be waiting a long time. And then even if you do get access, you might get some bit of support, but you might get access to a psychiatrist, but you don't have a nutrition professional to support you with eating or making sure that there's adequate nutrition or it's like, so it's just, it's, it's quite difficult. Um, and the people that I have met to my practice, particularly with restrictive eating disorders who relapsed, unless they were, or had maybe maintained somewhat, but then relapsed further, unless you had private insurance, which not everybody has here, um, it was virtually impossible to get um, like inpatient treatment unless you end up in the psych ward, which is not necessarily ideal either, because that's not going to give you the treatments that you need for your refeeding or your eating disorder. So yeah, it's, it's quite, it's really challenging and it's not, and I think, and, and then the weight bias added to that just doesn't help. There was another question I had, Christy, which just really circles back to the beginning of our conversations, but I was really curious um, when you were doing some of the refeeding at home with your daughter after the PHP, what kind of support did you get as parents around trying to make that very difficult process happen? Well, not very much. <laughs> not very much, but I will say that, you know, the first with my first child, I was a single parent and freshly divorced. So I felt like I was going through that experience very much alone. Um, the second time around, I have since married and I have an incredibly supportive spouse. And, um, and basically, he got on board, you know, with the program. And here's the thing is that the this refeeding and recovery it requires the entire family to be part of that process you know and so um I did feel supported in the sense that he he was on board with it there are a lot of families you know I listen in on these you know support sessions and there are a lot of families that you have like one person is not you know the the father is not on board or doesn't understand and so there's this kind of 
inadvertent sabotage that happens with the process. Um, we were very lucky to not have that. But it was challenging in the sense that, you know, while I was refeeding, I was trying to, I mean, gosh, I added a lot of cream and a lot of butter to every, you know, oil, cream, butter, every bit of fat I could get into the, especially the dinner, because that was the meal that my daughter would eat the best. And so I wanted to make sure I was like sneaking all of that in. Um, and so, you know, at a certain point in time, the family's like, uh, are we having this again? You know, I'm like, yes, we are. Everybody get on board. We're here, you know. Um, but in terms of outside support, I don't think, I don't really feel like, I mean, I was seeing a therapist, but it was mostly for my, my own eating issues. So I didn't have a ton of, um, support in that regard, but I did have, you know, we have a good team in place for my, uh, daughter and, you know, I would meet with, you know, regularly with her nutritionist and she would be, you know, kind of a support for me. And we did, you know, we tag teamed on, um, here's what, here's the approach and this is what we're going to do and how we're going to, um, you know, we were together united and that helped in terms of getting my daughter on board. So there was support from that perspective, which was a big benefit. Yeah. I think it's good to know for people and what, what to, yeah, what that process can look like and, and yeah, how, how you manage through, um, and they're both doing well today, you said. Yes. Yeah. And it, I think as well, like the fact that you said they are so aware of, of diet culture and they can spot it feels like relapse prevention from, from where I'm sitting. It's like, yeah, that's really going to help them um, be awake enough that they don't sort of just inadvertently just fall into like, oh, I'll just try a little diet and see you know just for whatever even if it's like in the future for their wedding or losing yeah. getting their body back after having a baby or you know the all the typical kind of diets that people might do who never even thought about it before I really think when people are have had an eating disorder like that you're even more you know that you're very susceptible to yeah. that your body that this is how your body was uh, response to restriction yeah I mean that to me is that's the thing that scares me the most is now just knowing how susceptible to relapse um you know my children are you know even if they you know had a cold and didn't eat for a few days and dropped to a certain level that could start triggering a lot of these physiological responses again um so I do think there's this kind of you know as a parent I've got this kind of constant like vigilance mm -hmm. around uh, you know that probably will never go away maybe it'll go away but it's sort of always there in the back of my mind like just making sure where are we here you know and mm. but I think that's you know 
yeah so you're their mother so of course you're going yeah. to care and you know you yeah. went through that process with them as well and knowing that it's not like something that I'm, I'm guessing any of you would want to repeat anytime soon right but I think having the knowing that that there is that susceptibility there um just might be really helpful because I feel like some people that I've talked to um and met particular older generations that when people didn't really know what an eating disorder was or that this was um this could happen I'm thinking about one person in particular I think she was in her the early 60s and had an eating disorder in her teens kind of recovered sufficiently went on had a life and then when she hit menopause she gained a bit of weight decided she was going to quote unquote do something about it and then that transpired into a full hospitalization relapse like there wasn't too much to begin with but it was just that that just set her off then on a on a path because that was where her body was at um and I, i think even when i met with her not sure was there enough still awareness that actually this is how my body responds when if it loses if it goes below a certain point point it, it, it this is where i end up yeah um, yeah we don't know why that is why it happens like that for some people i think it is not they're not clear because for most of us when we get to a certain point or we haven't eaten enough over a certain time period when the food becomes available we'll binge eat and that's more like a natural response to restriction because that's really conducive for survival whereas like eating becoming increasingly more difficult isn't really conducive to survival like from a species point of view right yeah yeah so some people's brains and bodies just respond that way and I suppose you don't know until until you know and at that point it's really hard yeah yeah this is the you know what I think about there are so many people that never fully recover you know when you read about um you know adults who had eating disorders as a kid and they never fully got out of it so they stay in this perpetual cycle and um and then you know the risk of a heart attack is so high. And I mean, you know, the, you have a lifetime of kind of this restrictive behavior and then just tragedy happens, you know. Um, it feels to me like, you know, the more aggressive people can be in treating eating disorders, the better, you know, versus letting this the cycle continue for years and years and years it's just it's it's I I think so too and I think if people were getting more support earlier on including with the refeeding and and this is just me from from observations but then like also without the weight bias and just keep pushing through until like the behaviors essentially have gone away and wherever the body stabilizes at that point. And simultaneously, I think working towards undoing all the unlearning, all the societal internalized right. stuff has to happen as well, regardless of the person's body size. Um, right. And it's like, 
is this thinking is this the eating disorders is this societal is is that yours are they yours like you wanna you know um so and it is hard like i work with a mix of people with different eating issues but i do know with like some of my restrictive clients i guess it's a very long slow sloggy road of you know keep at it and where i've also seen that like when things are improving and then weight might drop inadvertently because of sickness and stuff and then all of a sudden the behaviors might just um intensify again i just like to keep keep pushing it in some of my clients have been like younger adults didn't want the parental support in the feeding which makes it hard i i personally think that makes the road longer that they've been taking because it's been slower to increase the food intake over time than if you had been a bit more aggressive to begin with um but because they're adults they have more autonomy in that sense and you know i'm in private practice i only take on people who are medically stable but that's not to say that they are weight restored when they when they arrive right but it's just much much slower and i'm thinking like well if this had been more aggressive from the start with the support of family and people making meals and sitting down and eating and making it happen and not feeling they have to do most of it on their own it would have been quicker i think but that's kind of yeah trying to figure things out um and it's a little bit different and in this country there's not a lot of there's not a lot of support for people like to get more intense support unless you can like pay for it basically um yeah which is unfortunate as well so christy this has been really great i think lots of different directions and i want us to kind of wrap up with one of my favorite questions that i ask all my guests and that is what do joyful nourishment mean to you yeah so joyful nourishment to me feels like finding joy in what you eat and savoring the experience of eating truly enjoying your food because you know you love the taste of it um but also because you know there's an appreciation for uh, this food is life sustaining you know um and and i think giving thanks for what you have i you know too many people turn the act of eating into this shameful bad thing but i think we should be savoring food for what it is and what it does for our bodies thank you that's beautiful it's the life-sustaining gift that it is yeah i love that so where can people find you christy if they want to sign up to a newsletter and i put any links in the show notes yeah so i would say substack at um my substack is called almost sated and it is its own domain so www dot almost sated dot com that would be the primary place that i would send people to perfect and i love the title of your newsletter too almost sated i think it's a great i think it's a great name 
That's a great name. There's lots in that. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot for me anyway, when I hear that, there's a lot in that. So, so yeah. So thank you so much. And I hope there's been loads of takeaways for people are listening um, from this conversation. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Joyful Nourishment podcast is produced with no financial backing and your support means a lot to keep this project going. If this episode has been helpful in any way, please consider liking, subscribing or leaving a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. This helps the podcast to be found by others. And of course, you can also forward this episode to a friend whom you think may benefit. Find out more about what I offer on straightforwardnutrition.com and if you're interested in working with me, please use the link in the show notes to book in for a free initial 30-minute session. And finally, please come and join the Joyful Nourishment community over on Substack unless you're there already by subscribing to my newsletter using the link below.